and welcome back to Unheard Voices. My next guest is Trevor Howard. Trevor, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, no problem. Excited to chat. So I met Trevor a few months ago in the Salem area. And we started sort of talking a little bit about like how you ended up here. And I wanted to sort of expand on that conversation and talk about this unique perspective that you have about real estate. Like, how did you end up in Salem of all places? So I grew up in Salem um, or Kaiser, which is adjacent to Salem. Um, grew up here all my life, went to school in Salem, left for college at one point to go to Corvallis got an engineering degree, engineering job in Portland. Um, and then getting back into or getting into real estate brought me back to Salem um, just because didn't need to be living in Portland at that time. Um, so I love Salem. Um, I just have a whole community here, tons of people I know. Um, so I, I love being in Salem. It's great. <laughs> and I've been here a whopping seven months now or six months now. And I have to agree with you 100%. This is a very unique community. Mm -hmm. So like, how did you decide to get into like the engineering realm? Yeah. So my uncle was an engineer and I was relatively good at math. So I was just told I'm going to be an engineer and I gave him a thumbs up and said, great, I'll go, go to school, start this engineering degree and go from there. So I, yeah, just started, started with the classes, picked mechanical engineering, going through that, um, was going down the normal route of getting a job, got an engineering job, worked in that for two or three years after college um, and just realized I did not want to do that with my life. I, I didn't, I was just following someone else's advice to go get an engineering degree. I had no desire to do it. Um, it was cool. I didn't, I didn't, I liked learning. I liked doing math, so it was fine, but it, I just felt like there was more to do than just kind of sit at my desk and manage some spreadsheets. And you're one of those rare people that I talk to when, when you start talking about spreadsheets and math, your face lights up, which is <laughs> a rare thing in this planet. How did you get into the real estate piece though? Yeah. So that, that's kind of my specialty within real estate is modeling and doing all our analysis. So I use those skills I learned from engineering with the spreadsheets to build out all our financial tools. And these are tools we give all sorts of people to do basic math. Um, getting into real estate, have you, have you heard of FIRE, the acronym? No. Okay. So it stands for financial independence, retire early. Um, and it's this idea that you can save a ton of money, invest in like your 401k and finish the normal work life rather than retiring at 60, retire within about 10 years. If you, you know, save aggressively and live modestly. Um, so I came across that idea just listening to podcasts and when I was 21 or so, um, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And it kind of taught me basics of finance and saving money and doing all that. Um, so I was just following that path and I had a 10 year plan to save a million bucks. And they have this thing in the fire community called the 4% rule, if you've heard of it. Basically, if you have, you know, whatever amount of money in the stock market and you take 4% of that, it should sustain itself um, and continue to grow a little bit and let you withdraw 4% a year um, and let you live off that amount. So my idea was, okay, a million bucks in there and I'll have 40 grand a year to live off of. I was like 21 at the time. I was like, oh, that seems like a ton of money. Um, Cause I was living off of 
like 12 grand a year at that time. Um, so I was like, that's four times as much basically. Um, so that, that was my whole plan originally, um, had it all mapped out. And then I came across, um, this thing called bigger pockets. It's a real estate podcast where people just share their stories, how they got started investing and all of that. And that just showed, like, I was just listening to it for like a year or so before I bought any property. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And they talked about this idea of buying a house and renting out the rooms to like friends and living there for free or making a little money. Um, I was already living in a house so I, with all my friends. So I was like, hey guys, how about I buy a house? I'll rent all these rooms to you for a little bit cheaper than you're paying now. Um, and they're like, yeah, that sounds great. So I did that as part of the plan to reach fire earlier. So I was like, okay, I can reduce my spending because now I'm eliminating a housing expense. I'm not paying rent and they're paying it for me. Um, so that was kind of my intro into it. And I continued to learn real estate and kind of watch people listen and learn. Um, and I realized I could get to my 10 year target much faster through real estate than just saving at my nine to five job and kind of going in the stock market. So after I bought that first house, I bought another house 10 months later and did the same exact thing. Um, and just two houses and renting them out by the room. I had like 11, 12 bedrooms I was renting out then at that point to just different people. I was making like half my engineering salary just from doing that. So I was like, and which was double of my living expense. So I was like, oh, I reached my goal of I'm covering all my living expenses with this passive income. Um, so that's kind of how I got started with it. So one of the things that I'd like to step back and, and talk about, right, is because there is this misconception, like you need $150,000 or you need $250,000 to sort of just get in the game. Mm -hmm. And from what I've been talking to you about and what I've been hearing, this that's not simply true anymore, right? If you're creative enough, can Correct. you sort of expand on that? Yeah. And it, it's not even about being creative. So like I bought that first house with a 3% down loan. It was a $400,000 home. So it was like, what's that? $14,000 all in it cost me. Um, so I was making $50,000 at my job, spending 12. So after taxes, I had, you know, 25 or so left. Um, so that was plenty of money to just buy that first house. And then I started saving again and did it again. So, so someone can buy a house for, you know, 15 to $25,000 total um, and repeat exactly what I did. And how hard is it to secure financing these days when it comes to that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. If you have a job, not terribly hard. Um, once you have a job and you're making enough, they look at your debt to income ratio. So the lender will let your mortgage plus your um, other expenses, your debt expenses go up to about 50% of your gross income. Um, and then that's, you know, your housing payment there. So, so most people can do it. If you can't qualify, you can get a cosigner or, you know, and then that's the shortcut. Um, and if you can't do that, then you start to get into no more creative options and different financing options, um, and all those different, you know, ways to purchase real estate other than just conventional loans. And did you find it like difficult to have people to sort of move in? Like how hard was it to find like people to rent rooms? Yeah. So, so the first go around when I did it, it was just my buddies. So it was super easy. Um, when I bought the second house and repeated it, I didn't know anyone else in the area. Um, so then that was when I filled it with other people. And there's actually a really big demand for people wanting to rent rooms. 
Um, there's Facebook pages where you can post them for rent. There's websites like it's called like roommates.com or roomies.com. Um, and it's just people who don't want to pay the full amount for an apartment, but want a clean, nice place to live and some shared, you know, utilities. And it's, it's pretty easy. So there, I would fill like the next house I bought, it was a six bedroom home. And I filled it within like two weeks of people who wanted to come, come live in it. And then, so like when you made that leap, right? So that you went from one house to two, what mm -hmm. was next? Yeah. So at that point I got my real estate license because so many people were asking me what I was doing. Um, I was like, oh, okay. And there, there was right next to my engineering office, there's a real estate office. So I just walked in one day and I was like, Hey, I'm buying real estate. I think I should get my license because people are asking me for help. And so they helped me, got my license. And then I helped like three people the first month, which would like paid me like half of my engineering salary for the year. And I was like, Oh wow, this is this is crazy. I didn't do any more for the next like eight months after that. Cause I learned it's much harder than that. But, um, I decided it would be a great idea to quit my engineering job, um, and become a full-time real estate investor and agent. Um, and I realized I, after the fire movement, I came up with a plan of buying one house per year. Um, and that was my whole next goal. But once I quit my engineering job, I realized I couldn't qualify for loans anymore. Um, so my whole plan oh. was ruined. Yeah. Cause I didn't have a job. Um, so they couldn't get a bank loan. Uh, so that's kind of what led me to learning more about partnerships and these creative deal structures, because if I wanted to buy more real estate, I had to do it in a different way than I was. Um, so I learned, Oh, I don't have to get the loan. I can partner with someone else who does qualify and I could still bring, you know, my management skills. I can find the deal. I can analyze the deal. I can bring some money to the deal, but I don't necessarily have to be the one getting the loan. Um, so I started doing that and partnering with people who could qualify for a loan and we would go buy a deal together. Um, and kind of go started diving down that route. How hard was that to find those kind of relationships? Uh, not, not hard at all, actually. So by that time, me just owning two properties, like that, that's quite a bit of property to the average person. Um, especially when I was doing it, when I was like 22 years old. Um, and I knew like from doing it, I had gained a ton of knowledge. So I would share like, here, here's exactly how I'm doing it. And it would make sense to them. And they'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. I'd like to do the same. So then I would just take them with me, show them what I'm doing, teach them, do it with them. And then for your portfolio now, is it predominantly just houses or have you ventured into like the apartment realm or any of that stuff? As yeah. Well? So now I mostly buy apartments. I own about a hundred apartment units, um, mixed between, I don't know how many properties that is, maybe like 13 to 15 different properties. Um, so we, we still buy houses, but most, mostly apartments at this point. Why did you make the transition from houses to apartments? It's a good question. Um, honestly, I just read in a book like that. It didn't matter. Same thing applies to apartments and they're, they're just bigger deals. You can do more at once. So it takes the same amount of time to go buy a $3 million apartment complex as it does a $300,000 house essentially. Um, so I, I just read it in a book that like, Hey, it doesn't matter how much credit you have, how much you know money you have, how old you are. Like you can actually buy an apartment complex. Um, and I believed it just cause I read it. They showed me how to do it. And I kind of followed along with the steps of like, okay, you have to go find a deal, analyze the deal and then find partners and then find money and go down that route. So I bought my first apartment complex when I was 
Um, I 23, 24, maybe by that time I had bought a few houses and a few small apartments, like four unit buildings. And then I bought a 16 unit building. Um, and that was kind of my, my first one of that size and my start into that space. So when you're talking about like the analyzing piece, right? Because you have a gift for that, 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 that far exceeds a lot of people that I've met. Like, what's the trick behind that? Like, how do you go about analyzing whether it's a right investment for you? Yeah, so so there's two pieces to that. So I truly believe anyone can learn how to do it because I did not know. I knew zero about it on the front end. Um, and again, I read it in a book and, and the book said, go analyze 100 deals. And after you have attempted to analyze 100 deals, you will know how to do it by the end of that. Um, so that's exactly what I did. And then I improved as I was doing it over time. Like I didn't know what cash on cash return was to start. So I would, you know, read the book. It gives you all the basics and then be like, here's how you'd analyze it. Now practice it. Um, so just from iterations of doing that, I learned, learned, learned. And now it's become more complex where it's just pages and pages of spreadsheets. Um, but your, your basic numbers you're running are like, Hey, here's my cash on cash return or my overall ROI. So, so in real estate, you have four economic benefits. You have cash flow, which a lot of people have heard of. Then you have appreciation, which a lot of people have heard of. Then you have loan pay down and then you have depreciation. And those are like the four ways you make money in real estate. Then you go apply math to that and see, you know, here's my additional dollars invested. I can benefit through those four things with these assumptions and then you're running some math based on that. So you said we used a term when you first started talking there, you said cash on cash on cash return. Yeah. Explain that a little bit because that's a term I've never heard of until this precise moment. Okay, perfect. So it's the same idea of your return on investment. Like if you go buy a hundred dollar stock and it gives you 10, $10 of return, right? pays you $10 on a dividend or however it pays you. That'd be your $10 of gain divided by your $100 invested 10% ROI return on investment. Your cash flow is the same exact thing. So let's say you buy a $100,000 property, it cash flows $10,000. You take your $10,000 you gained divided by your initial investment and that gives you your cash on cash return. And what's the goal? Like, is there a certain number you're looking for, a certain percentage? That's where it becomes individualized. So different investors have different models of things they are looking for. Um, usually the numbers are just to give you a basis of what this investment will do so you can compare it to other opportunities, right? So you might look at your overall ROI for a stock you may buy, and then you look at it for a property and you're like, okay, this A is better than B, so I'm going to put my money there. And I've also like started the, the process of gaining more knowledge about the difference between investing in real estate versus like your traditional stock market. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of talk to me a little bit about why you think real estate is a much more sound investment yeah, in something like the stock market? Yeah, you, you can make money in both. Like I have friends who invest in stocks and that's what they do full time. Um, I don't invest in stocks because I don't understand them and I have no control. You're buying a very, very small piece of a business that you have no say in. You don't really know what's happening. Like you're, you're just kinda, you don't know what's going on. Um, when you buy a piece of real estate, you have full control of, hey, I can make this property nicer so it attracts more tenants, higher rent, all these different things. You have way more control over the asset. 
And the biggest part about real estate is you can leverage it. So how I mentioned, I bought that first house, a $400,000 home with $14,000 down. If that thing goes up by 3% in value, I get the full benefit of that $400,000. If I go put $14,000 in the stock market and it goes up by 3%, you know, I make a couple hundred dollars. So when you're talking about apples to apples comparison, if you're, if you have that 3%, you can leverage it. When you mean leverage, you mean like getting an additional loan, getting additional mm -hmm. financing gives you other opportunities to invest that money. Whereas in the stock market, you're kind of stuck. You have those shares and you gain 3%, but you still are sort of the only thing you can do with that is either sell or just sit. Yeah, that's the idea of it. And, and again, you can make money in the stock market if you have like, you go read all the reports and you're like, hey, this business is going to take off because I studied X, Y, and Z. Um, I just think it's much easier to do in real estate and more repeatable for most people. And then I think you can grow it larger as well if you really want to. And I hear from a lot of people, like one of the biggest fears about getting into real estate, especially like when you're talking about like the rental piece and being a landlord, there's a lot of uh, stories out there about how horrible mm. it is to be a landlord and all of these really horrible experiences as a landlord. What do you say to folks that are sort of on the fence because they're nervous about just that landlord piece? Yeah. If you do it long enough, that will happen. Um, you are going to have those problems. It's just learning how you deal with them. So when I started out, um, I didn't know you were supposed to screen tenants. So like one of the tenants I placed in one of my houses was just like, yeah, he just wasn't paying on time, doing all these things, causing a ruckus to everyone. Um, and I didn't know like, hey, if I would have just screened them, I would have saw a criminal background history and all this different stuff that, you know, would have showed it's not the best renter to have. Um, so you can mitigate a lot of the risk just through basic screenings. And like there's companies that handle all that for you. Um, other than that, you, you will have bad tenants if you do it long enough, it's just part of it and you accept it and you bake it into your analysis. So we know like, Hey, 5% at any given time, we're assuming 5% of people aren't paying us, whether that's because we're fixing a unit and it's empty or someone's just not paying us for whatever reason. And we're going through that process. Um, so it, it will happen. <laughs> like, and it's just accepting that and knowing you will have to deal with it. And it is part of the risk. Um, most people, if you're just buying one house, you probably won't experience it, honestly. Um, especially if it's a, you know, a nice house, nice neighborhood and all that, you're not going to have many problems and the odds are pretty low. Um, but they, if you do it long enough, it is 100% going to happen. And then something else that, that comes up from time to time. So like, if you're looking at like getting into the real estate market, in that housing sort of realm, right? That first initial, like you want to buy a house and rent out a bunch of rooms. Mm -hmm. Do you have to worry about zoning or any of that kind of stuff? Like if it becomes a rental property, even if it's just a house? Yeah, not, not zoning in terms of a rental. Sometimes in different counties and cities, there's like, hey, if you, you can only put so many people per bedroom type of thing, or like only so many people can live in a house. Um, and there's some regulations like that, but renting it out, no, there's, there's not really like, unless you have an HOA, then maybe your HOA says like, Hey, you can't use this as a rental or a short-term rental, but that's even pretty rare. And even in those regards, you, you're going to know that before you get in. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, if somebody does want to start down this path, like what's the best 
where, where's the best place to start? Yeah. So we actually, we do a free class for everyone. That's like an hour long of like, here's exactly how you can do it. And we try to jam pack all the info. Um, so I recommend that like is an easy one. Um, if you're in Salem, like coming to the meetup, like you come to, it's a great place to meet other people who are invested in and like that. So before I invested, I used to go to all of those. And that's why we started our, the Salem real estate meetup is because I just loved going there and I didn't own anything. And I would say, Hey, like, I'm Trevor. Nice to meet you. Like, what do you buy? And then they would tell me exactly how they did it. And I'd be like, okay, that's cool. Ask them all the questions and learn. Um, so those are great ways to go about it. And then it's just diving into books and podcasts. And there, there's a all the information is free online and via books. You just have to go look for it. Hard part is there's so much real estate information, so many ways to invest. It can be overwhelming. Um, good thing for most beginners is they don't have any, not very much money, like no experience or anything like that. So they're typically starting out with like an owner occupied loan, buying a house and renting out the rooms. They're maybe buying a house, fixing it up a little bit themselves or buying like a duplex, triplex, fourplex. You can do that with 5% down too, renting out the other units. And that's like a great intro. And then there's a few other combinations of things you can do for beginners that are pretty easy. Which does bring me to my next part of the conversation I want to have with you, because you started this very interesting and cool meetup place in, in, in Salem. How did you come up with the idea of coming up with this sort of event that you have every once a month? Yeah. So, so we started, we started doing it just me and a few buddies. We were just like, Hey, we want to get together once a month and talk about real estate. Um, and then we had like people who wanted to come and whatnot, but we had like a table of five people. So we were like, Oh, we, we don't even have enough space. Um, then we stopped doing that for a while because it was so hard with so few amount of people to consistently show up. Um, and me and my buddy, Alex, who helped start it, um, just wanted to put on like a bigger one and see who would come. So just one day we put it on Facebook and we said, Hey, in three weeks, we're going to all get together. And if you like real estate, just show up at this spot. And we had like, I don't know, like 50, 60 people show up. Um, and like, all we did was post it in a few Facebook groups and share it on our feeds and just, yeah, there's tons of people. I knew maybe like half of them and then just ton, whoever heard about it, people shared it, came, showed up. So we're like, Oh, that was awesome we're going to do this again the next month. And then we had like another 60 people show up and then we we're like, okay, we have all of these people showing up. We should probably like try to teach something maybe, or give them value. So then we started calling speakers and we're like, Hey, we have like 60 people showing up. Do you want to come talk and share? Like I would just call my buddies who invest and be like, you want to share how you got started and answer any questions they have. Um, and then that just kept growing from there. So we used to do it at Venti's actually. Um, but Venti's became too small. So then we moved to um, Chicha because um, we started getting like 100 people to the last one. We just had like 140 S. So now Chicha's too small. So we, we just got a new event space um, that can now fit like 200 people. Oh, I didn't know you had a new space. That's awesome. We're, Fresh we're about off to launch the presses. Mm -hmm. Hot off the presses. That's amazing. Where'd you find? Yeah. So we're, we're doing um, on State Street downtown by the cue ball and the Sassy Onion. Uh, the Sassy Onion just bought the building next to them and they decked out the event space. Um, so, the, so that's where the next one will be coming up in March. So we got to launch that for the next one. That's awesome. And how do you find your speakers? Uh, that's the hard part. So I, so far I've been calling people I know um, and just asking them and we, we fall a little behind. So sometimes I'm like, oh crap, like 
coming up in like three weeks, I need a speaker. So I call a bunch of people like, Hey, do you know anyone who wants to speak? Do you know anyone who wants to speak? Cause we're trying to, we bring pretty high quality speakers who own quite a bit and like have a big wealth. I can knowledge. attest to that. Yeah. So, so I need to get a little more on top of it and start planning a few months ahead, but we have so many other things going on. I just let it, <laughs> let it fall behind every once in a while. But so we're, I'm about out of my network. So if people are listening to this and they know of great speakers who own real estate portfolios, reach out to me and, We'd love to talk to them. You got it. So what are some of the other things you got going on? Yeah. So I have, we were doing that meetup and then me and my partner, Dane, who, you know, we own our company, Vesta Solutions, which we help people invest through. So we do beginner investors and help them build real estate portfolios. And then we do specialize in like commercial multifamily for more advanced investors also. Um, so we have that that we're running and then through that as well, we're building our personal real estate portfolio. So we're just working on acquiring and buying more deals. So right now we're buying in our pipeline, a 39 unit apartment complex an 18 and then some, a few houses and we're, so we're working on those deals for ourselves. So as you've progressed from like the, the house to the apartments, to these bigger units, like what's been the most surprising difference in how you have to approach servicing these buildings? Servicing them is similar. Um, like you're, you have all the same stuff, siding, roofs, water heaters. You just have X amount more times of them with a unit, right? Um, with more units, you have economies of scale. So you have all your units under one roof, one manager can go to one place. Um, so it's a little bit easier there, but the fundamentals are pretty similar, um, of a lot of the deals. So you're running the similar numbers. Your financing is just different. Now you're going into commercial loans and doing it a little different there. And your timelines a little, are a little longer, but overall, the, the concept of all these different real estate investments is relatively similar. Like you can buy an RV park or a hotel or all these different things. And, you know, you're, you're doing slightly different analysis, but the high level of it is pretty similar. And then the difference between loans, I do want to talk about that briefly, right? Because like, I understand the whole concept of a conventional mortgage and a conventional mm -hmm. mortgage loan. But when you're talking about the difference between like your conventional loan and your commercial loan. What's the primary difference between the two? Yeah, so a conventional loan looks at you as an individual borrower and a commercial loan looks at the deal more so. So you, as a, on a conventional loan, as long as you meet the debt to income requirements, they'll give you the mortgage up to that amount. They don't care what the property rents for or anything like that. When you look at a commercial loan, they give you a DSCR ratio, which stands for debt service coverage ratio. And they want you to make $1.25 on the property after all expenses for every dollar of debt. So that ratio changes depending on the loan amount, because if the loan amount's higher, your debt payment goes higher. So if you don't meet that ratio, they lower the loan amount they will give you on that specific property. Um, other than that, a commercial loan is looking at like more so like experience, like do you own other properties? Um, like, do you have the net worth to support this as well? And some other factors like that, but it's more deal focused. They're not looking at your, you so much as an individual. So is it harder to obtain the loan through like a commercial loan versus the other way around? 
depends on the individual. It can be easier for some people. So like a lot of investors don't qualify for conventional loans because they get so many tax returns and so much paperwork and all this complications of like conventional loan just becomes a headache. Um, so they're, the commercial route is much simpler because they're just dealing with investors and that's what they know. Um, so they're used to looking at all that stuff. And then is there a, like a general rule of thumb about like, so like what's the, what's the entry level, right? So how much do we have to have sort of like, how do you get into that commercial loan space, if you will? Like what's mm -hmm. the barrier to entry there? Probably net worth for most people. So, and that's where coming in and partnering on a deal makes sense. So the first apartment complex I bought was $2.4 million and I bought that with partners. So I didn't own the whole thing, but I didn't have 2.4 or our loan amount, I guess would have been 1.8 million or so on that. I didn't have $1.8 million net worth or any experience to get the loan. So I brought in partners who did, and they could qualify for the loan. And now I gain a little bit on my balance sheet so I can qualify for a little bit more of a loan next time. Oh, interesting. So how do you find like partners then? Like, is that sort of like the, the, the key? Like, cause like, I know a lot of people that want to get into this space, but it's like, it's kind of confusing. It's sort of built in a way to where it's like, it, it sort of keeps your traditional person out unless they do the research and sort of know somebody like you who can sort of help talk them through this. Mm -hmm. Like what's the best approach to like get five buddies together and just kind of go in on a, on a space kind of thing. Yeah. That, that's one route you can definitely go. And that works. How I did it was I tried to add value to people who I knew who were already investing. So what I did was I found that apartment complex deal and structured it and it was a good enough deal. They wanted to invest in it that they would go get, use their loan for it. Um, so when I did that first deal, I was just writing letters to apartment owners saying, hi, my name's Trevor. I just graduated from Oregon State. Here's a little bit about my story. I saw your building at this address and I just wanted to talk to you and see if I could possibly purchase it. Um, and then, you know, like 3% of those people that I wrote letters to maybe call me back and say, thanks for the letter. No way. But no. And then one guy's like, yeah, I would talk about selling it. Like, let's talk more, um, which kind of rolled me to that point to where I had the deal. And then once you have a deal, the like money and partners will come if the deal is there. And you said like you sent a letter with a part of your story. What was the part of your story that you highlighted to get people to sort of write you back or call you back? Yeah, just my age. Um, so I highlighted my age because I knew it was unique that 22 year olds were not trying to buy $2 million apartment complexes. So I just said, hey. I love real estate. I own a few properties already. I'm 22 years old and I'm just super passionate. I would love to buy this thing. But even if you're not looking to sell it, I would just love to talk to you and see how you bought it. Um, so, and most, most people are pretty generous with their time that have money. Like they, they, if you take an interest in what they're doing, they'd love to share their story and kind of how they went about it. So what's the most fascinating story that you have? Oh yeah. So I, I was calling. Um, so I stopped writing letters eventually because I realized I could just call people and so much quicker. Um, I met this lady on the phone. She was, I don't know. I can't remember now, maybe like 80 years old now. She came to America working as a maid, um, didn't know English at all. Um, making below minimum wage. I think she came in as a legal immigrant maybe or something. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. Cause I just, I can't remember. It's been like a year since I talked to her, but I asked her how she got started not speaking any English and she owned, she owned like 
right now, I think it was like $40 million worth of real estate now at 80 years old. Um, so I was like, how did you do that? And she was like, I read a book that said how to become a millionaire in real estate. And I followed the steps it said. And I was like, that, that is it. And she's like, yes, that is it. And I was like, wow, the information really is there. Like you just have to take it and like take the steps that people are giving you. Cause like that, that story, she, she didn't even speak English. So like, I can't imagine trying to buy a real estate deal, like not even speaking English to start out. A hundred percent. And like navigating all of the systems and all that stuff, especially if she's 80 now, like at the time she did it mm -hmm. too. Like, wow. She, yeah. She had all the things going against her. So she was a woman at the time, like back in the day where that would have been way harder than today. She was an immigrant. She was making below minimum wage. Like she had no money, no, no credit, no, nothing. And she built up this giant portfolio just from taking the steps of like this book that she came across. I, I don't know how she even came across it, but. That's amazing. So like, how did you, so if you're, if you're like looking at where you're at now, like, and you're, tr and you're sort of talking to people that are coming to you sort of for help, is there a book that you recommend or something that you recommend people to sort of look at? Yeah, I recommend podcasts to start out um, just because it's so easy for people. Um, so like we have a podcast called the Deal Junkies podcast, um, where it's me, Gabe, Dane, and Mike. And we, we talk about like our stories and different things and like how we started out and we interview guests and we're trying to share that information too. Um, other than that, there's books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, oh, there's so many. I can't think of them off the top of mind. Honestly, if you literally just go on Google and you type in beginner real estate books, you'll have 10 books to pick from. Just pick one. It doesn't, they, they all have the same information in them for the most part. So how long have you been doing your podcast? Uh, we've only released two episodes. We filmed five. Um, so like a month. Well, so, uh, twinsies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's a ton of fun. Oh, I love it. So like, what do you, so like, what's the last topic that you all talked about in your podcast? Um, the last one, the last segment we did was talking about deals. So we talked about like the deals we're doing live, like, and we'll pitch like, so Mike, uh, Mike Nuss, he's not buying those deals with us. We'll pitch him like, Hey, here's our thoughts on this deal. Here's how we're doing it. Like, what do you think? Would you do this deal? And he'll kind of, you know, give us feedback like, Oh, you're doing that terribly. I don't like this or I like this. Um, so it's kind of cool. Like we're trying to take advantage of the people in the room just for selfishness and run all the different things we're doing off them and getting feedback and just kind of filming it and sharing it because it's valuable insights to others. And so like when you're talking about looking at a deal, like what are some of the things that you're looking at? Like what are the, some of the things that's like going to take it over the top? Like, yeah, this, this makes sense versus some of the, those red flags. Like if you see something like what, it, what would be a, Let's let's start with the red flags, I guess. So if you're looking at a deal, what are those red flags where you like you see that and you're like, I'm going to have to pass? Yeah, <laughs> I'm probably a bad example of this because uh, me and Gabe, we love buying real estate. So we're more aggressive than most people. So like what I'm doing, I don't necessarily recommend other people do. We'll take on more risks than others. Um, our investment thesis is buying the most amount of real estate possible with the least amount of money possible. Um, and that's how we feel like we can grow the most wealth through that. Um, red flags for like a beginner starting out is going to be like, hey, this property's in too much disrepair shown via our inspection report. And I don't have the money to go fix it up or like the loan won't finance me, you know, spending that money. Um, 
I mean, there, there's a ton of red flags, but everything is fixable for like the most part. There, were, there was one time we came across a deal we liked and it had a it had a septic system and it the city said it had to have be connected public sewer but the sewer line was on the other side of a park so you had to drill and bore all the way all the way underneath the park and it was in the city of portland so their permitting process takes so so long that it was just like we could do that but it's not worth the headache and all the the drama so that's like one example um but so many other things are fixable to where it's like, it's just like, does it make sense based on that? Or can we adjust the deal so it so it works? So like, for example, we're doing um, a seller carry deal and a seller carry is where the, the homeowner or property owner acts as the bank for you. So maybe they own the property free and clear, so you don't have to get a bank loan. You just make payments to them over time. Um, so we're buying this set of houses from this guy and then we do the inspection and the roof is just shot on one of them. It's like, oh, this needs, it's leaking. It needs to be replaced immediately. Um, but we didn't have any more money to go do that deal. Like we didn't want to invest more than our down payment and go fix that roof. So what we structured with him is like, Hey, we're not going to, he's not going to take payments from us for four months so we can save that money to go fix the roof. So there's creative solutions all the time when you run into problems. I appreciate that. Yeah. So it's like being clever and like working with the folks because I guess at the end of the day, you're both wanting the deal to end and you're both wanting it to close. So if you can come up with a creative solution, that's sort of like a win-win for both. Like why not? Yeah. And for 95% of the deals, you have to make it a win-win situation, I would say, because otherwise they have the thing you want and they're not going to give it to you unless you give them something that makes sense for their situation. So it's really fun. And everyone needs something different. Like price is not always like the determining factor. Sometimes it's a timeline or a monthly payment amount or, you know, what, or they just want to see the property be something specific done with it or whatever it may be. Oh, interesting. And then on the flip side, like what are those things that you're looking for in terms of a, of a property or a deal that, that makes it more attractive than others? Yeah, right now we are buying value add. So we're trying to buy properties that have just not been taken care of, going and fixing them up and making them nicer and better places to live. Um, and then you can, you know, spend a dollar to make two basically. So spend a dollar on repairing and it makes you two back in the value of the property. Um, so we're looking for those. And then we like deals that are more creatively structured where the owner does want to carry. So a lot of these people, own a piece of property, they self-manage it maybe, uh, but they don't want to deal with the tenants anymore because it's work. They want to, they're fixing all the stuff themselves. They don't have management, they're doing whatever. So they want to like collect their passive income still, but stop doing the work. So we love to buy those properties where we're like, hey, we will pay you monthly rather than us having to get a bank loan. And then, you know, you still collect passive income. You don't have to sell this fully, pay all your taxes. Um, so we, we love those deals because we get to come in with less money typically. And then in terms of like the, the how does, how is a structure of a commercial loan different than the structure of a conventional mortgage? Yeah. So a conventional mortgage, typically you have a 30 year life cycle of it. Um, and you just pay down the loan over 30 years and then you own the property free and clear. In a commercial loan, typically they only give you five to 10 years. 
So they'll have a 30 year pay down plan for you. So it's not like you have to pay it all back within 10 years. You're still on a 30 year payment plan, but at year 10, they say, Hey, you either have to sell refinance this property, you know, or do, or get it, you know, do whatever you're going to do. Um, so you're getting a new loan at that point, possibly you're selling. So it's still like broken out. So just like you have a 30 year mortgage, but the terms are like every 10. Yeah, they have. Um, so you can commercial loans sometimes do shorter. It's called amortization schedule. And that just shows how your principal is paid back over time. Um, commercial loans do 30 years. They sometimes do 25, though. So it's typically 25 or 30. Your conventional loans are typically 30. Sometimes people do 15 if they're trying to pay it back quicker. Um, Sorry, what was your question? <laughs> so like the, at that 10 year, so, so at that 10 oh, yeah, year yeah. spot. Yeah. So, so in commercial, they have what's called a balloon payment. So like they're at that 10 years, the rest of the loan balance is due. Um, so it's just a hard cutoff partway through your loan basically. And that's anywhere from two to 10 years, depending on the loan type you're doing. Sometimes you can do longer ones too, but typically five to 10 for most commercial loans. And then at that five ten, you said the balloon payment. So basically, at the end of the five years, you do have to do that whole. And how easy, I guess, is is it to refinance at that time? So that's where the risk is involved. It depends on like where interest rates are at because you're looking at that debt service coverage ratio. So like, let's say you bought a property at a five percent interest rate, right? And you didn't improve anything about the property, and the money you're making on the property is the same in five years. The interest rates are seven percent it's going to qualify for less of a loan so, and your property isn't going to be worth, you know, as much. So if, if you're mapping it out correctly and paying down the loans and you have a 10 year fixed rate term over 10 years, you pay down 18% of principal. So if your property is worth the same as it is today in 10 years, which is a pretty safe bet, you'd only have to bring in like 7% if you want to refinance like it, and well, it, sorry, that's if it went down in value. You already put your money in on the front end, so you you would just be fine in that specific scenario, right? Because the reality is, is that the chances of the real estate market going down in value is pretty slim to none, right? Over a long enough time horizon, I believe so. Over short cycles, you definitely have dips. So, like perfect example of this going poorly. A lot of people just brought properties, and when interest rates were three percent, four percent, and you know, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty. They bought it on three-year debt terms. Today, interest rates are six and a half, seven percent. Property values went up, but dipped down a bit. Their incomes are probably not high enough to support that new debt structure with the double the rate. Um, so that, that's a scenario where you could run into problems with it. Um, we try to mitigate that by getting the longest debt terms possible because it just mitigates risk, and you have time to figure it out, time to improve the property, time to pay down the loan. And let's say like you're halfway through, right? Let's say you have a 10 year thing and you're at year five and you've noticed that, you know, interest rates are dipping and now might be a really good opportunity to sort of refinance early. There's no sort of penalty to refinance early if that opportunity presents itself, right? Sometimes. Um, so that depends on the specific loan term. Sometimes they have prepayment penalties where, and it can, you just do the math and see if it's worth it or sometimes the bank will waive it. Um, but yeah, you, you want to take advantage and watch the market. And like a lot of those debts, you're not going to actually hold for 10 years. You're going to finish your business model sooner and go do it much earlier. So can you tell me a little bit about, explain what you just talked about? So you just, what you just said, 
the the prepayment penalties are not holding it for as like the full yeah life they're cycle. not holding it what do you mean when you say oh, you're no. not holding it for the full life cycle yeah so like let's say your business model is to go you have a 10-year loan and your business model is to go fix this whole thing up over the next six years but you finish it in four so now you have the value you need and maybe interest rates have dipped so you'll refinance it four years in rather than hold it for the full 10. um so yeah, you, you know your target and what you're doing with a property usually beforehand um, and then know how long you think it will take, but then you try to get the longest term debt possible every single time because, for example, like in 2008 when the market crashed, right, um, that would be an unfortunate time to have to go refinance a loan if you had short-term debt. Um, but even if you look at like the cycle of real estate in 2008, if you look at 2008 and you bought at the peak in 2008 and you had 10-year debt, and we're able to hold your property that whole time, you're fine. I get you. Okay. It's starting to all kind of make sense, which is, which is awesome because I'm, I'm usually not the best at, at the financial piece. So I really appreciate you sort of breaking this stuff down for people to understand it. Yeah. So like if, so if people are coming like to this conclusion, like they want to get started like you were saying, the podcast, all that stuff, right? When it comes to like getting to that first deal, do you recommend that people seek out a real estate agent or a broker? Do you recommend people to sort of just try to find things on their own? Like how, what is the best place for people to start Yeah, to yeah. get some more help and information? Yeah. Having professionals in that industry who are doing what you want to do is key. So like that, that's why we're so specialized in what we do. We help people invest because we are investing ourselves. So we have all the information for them. So finding like a real estate agent who owns a few rental properties to help you out is really important. Cause if you find a, there, there's tons of real estate agents all over. If you find one who just sells houses and doesn't own any real estate, they are going to have no idea at all. Like, anything about investment properties. So just finding someone to help you out who even like owns two properties, three properties, they're going to have a wealth more of knowledge than your average person. Um, so I'd recommend that. And then getting pre-approved. If you find a real estate agent, they're going to walk you through the whole thing and down the process. But basically you're going to find them, you're going to get pre-approved and then you're going to start analyzing deals. And then once you get comfortable with knowing what you're looking for, you start making offers and then go through the sales process from there. So I'm going to throw a question that's sort of out of left field, right? Okay. J just because like, it's one of those things that drives me absolutely up the wall when people are looking at real estate and they decide not to buy a property because of a paint color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Could you talk to me about why that is a bad idea? Yeah, I would look at the numbers. So I would see what the home price difference is for a different paint color and how much it costs to paint. So like that, that, that drove me crazy. When I, when I was a beginner real estate agent, I wasn't just doing investments. I was just doing whoever needed help. And I ran into that problem all the time where someone would want to pay $50,000 more for a home because it had XYZ paint color. And I was like, you know, it costs like 10 grand to go paint this other one, right? And it, it would, I just couldn't comprehend it. That's one of those things I can't comprehend too, but you see in all those shows about real estate and like they're looking at properties to buy and you'll see people that just won't buy it because of a paint color. And it's like, why? Mm -hmm. yeah. Why? 
So what are the things that are you are looking for, right? You, you go into this apartment complex and you're taking a look around. What are some of the things that you're looking for or evaluating in terms of like what makes this a, a workable piece of property? Yeah, like you're looking at the kitchen remodel. You're looking for leaks, just the condition of the property. Like, are we going to have to take this whole unit and rip it all apart to rebuild it up? Or can we just replace countertops and do some paint and floors? Like what level of remodel needs to be done? Um, you don't have to remodel every property also. Like we buy properties that are just mismanaged maybe, and there's some operational efficiencies we can apply. Um but it, it's really like you, you learn from doing. So me going through and looking at a property now, I could be like, oh, okay, this will take about $15,000 to turn this unit because I've paid for so many of them now at this point. Um, if you're starting out, you can line by line break that down. And there, there's books on this too. So I used to read this book. It was called um, something like how to rehab a property or how, how to analyze your rehab. And it takes you through the book. Like here's all the things you want to line by line item, like check off what you need. Here's about the price for each square foot you need. How many square feet is this thing you're buying? And you'll get like this estimate range. Um, other things you can do is just get bids from contractors where it's like, go get three bids, compare them, and you'll, you'll get an idea of what stuff costs. And is it common to sort of reach out to contractors before the deal is done just to sort of get an idea or... Yeah, have a if you have a good relationship with a contractor, that's huge. Someone you know, like and trust, and they can come walk the property with you and be like, "Hey, this is you know what I'm seeing. Here's the things you can fix." Um, a contractor typically knows a lot more than an inspector if they're a good one because they're the ones actually diving in and doing all the work. Um, but yeah, gaining an inspection report and then having a contractor look at some of the stuff too is always a good option. And one. Actually, it brings up a good point, right? Because there, there's a huge difference in the types of inspectors that you can get and the type of inspection report that you get. Are, is there a certain kind of thing that you're looking for in your inspections? Like, do you want your inspector to be like, would you rather pay a little bit more for somebody who's really more thorough? Like, how important is the inspection report? Because I learned the hard way about how important it is, and I just wanted to hear it from you about what your thoughts are. Yeah. So for example, we had an inspector we used to use who wasn't super thorough. He got on the roof and he said, thumbs up. This roof looks great. Uh, that roof was leaking a week later and had dry rot everywhere and it was terrible. Uh, so having an inspector who knows and can point that stuff out to you is huge. I would say most inspectors I've seen are relatively okay and you know have an idea and they'll point stuff out and be like, hey, I don't know about this one. Ask, ask someone who's in that field about it. Um, Realistically, though, they're, they're not going to catch everything. You're just hoping, like, you're just paying 500 bucks to catch enough to cover your 500 bucks you spend. They're not, they're not going to catch everything, and every deal you buy is going to have stuff come up later because stuff just deteriorates over time. Um, it's just helping you mitigate risk, but you can't mitigate it all. And then do you recommend, like, a certain percentage in your portfolio sort of as a standby or reserve to help offset the costs if those sort of construction needs arise? Oh, like a percentage of your income? Yeah. So typically we're running it at like $1,300 per unit per year um, to account for like some turnover and maintenance and different and some reserves for future things. Um, it's kind of property dependent and that's where underwriting comes into play. Because if you buy a brand new property, 
you're going to run it at like a 25 to 30 percent expense ratio where if you buy something that's quite a bit older it might run at like a 45 percent expense ratio or so um just because things are older breaking more frequently and when you mean what do you mean when you say 45 percent expense ratio yeah so you look like let's say you're making a hundred thousand dollars in total rent yearly rents on this property if you have a 45% expense ratio, 45% of that rent would go to paying all your expenses. So like your taxes, your insurance, your repairs, maintenance, management, utilities, and all that stuff. So in that case, it'd be 45 grand. And do you find it's better in those instances where you have those old buildings to sort of remodel and re-improve as you go? Or is it actually better to sort of just sort of maintain, or I guess it depends on preference, right? Yeah, it depends on preference and your business model. So like if if you want to go, it, yeah, it, it's just case, such a case-by-case case scenario um, and how your debt is structured and what you're doing and how quick you want to do it. Um, so typically, yeah, if you have a mismanaged property and it's super low rents and it's just, you know, you like we've bought some things that cockroaches and rats and all like I can't believe they're treating the property like this, like not providing heat. So like in those, it's like, you got to go fix the whole, like you have so much work to do. You got to fix the whole thing up and it makes sense to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit case by case. Cause some of them are like, Hey, it's outdated, but it's completely livable, clean. Like it's just, you know, nineties vintage, like it's just old. And those are like, okay, we're just going to wait until, you know, this person wants to move out. And then at that point we'll go fix everything up and update it and remodel it. I appreciate it. So it looks like we're coming up on our time. Right on. I really enjoyed our conversation today, Trevor. Cool, Sean. Yeah, great chatting with you too. I would like to do this again. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk whenever. And I'm sure we'll talk more about your other stuff. What did, I, what did I miss? What didn't I ask that you want to include before our time concludes? Oh, dude, we could, we could go on for hours about real estate, so I don't want to waste too much of your time here. But <laughs> You're never wasting my time, my friend. You are never wasting my time. Yeah, I, mean, I, I appreciate So I'm going to throw some stuff out there, right? I appreciate how well you are able to sort of break down real estate in a place where I can understand it, right? Because before I had conversations with you, I was clueless to about all of this stuff. And the way that you're able to sort of take these complex ideas and bring them into like a natural conversation where we can actually talk about this stuff is pretty awesome. So I really appreciated the opportunity that you came in and actually do this for others as well. Yeah, no problem. We, we do it all day. So we, we, we love to talk real estate. So how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, you can check me out. You can find me on Instagram, Trevor Howard. Um, T-H-O-W-5, I think, is the tag on there. Um, you can find our podcast on all different platforms, Instagram, Facebook, too, Deal Junkies, Dash, a real estate podcast. And then we have the Salem Real Estate Investor Group. We have a Facebook and Instagram page for that. And if anyone wants to come hang out with us, we're there first Wednesday of every month. You'll see all the events posted. Come ask your questions and hang out with people if you want to learn. And I would highly encourage folks to attend that meeting. It is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun time. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate it. You have a wonderful afternoon and we'll talk soon. Cool. You too, Sean.